I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. so many ways to tell a story. Singer-songwriter Jane Ross Fallon decided to write a song about Florida for the Will McLean Festival. McLean is considered the father of Florida folk music. Jane began to do research and came across the story of the Rosewood Massacre. She couldn't understand how she didn't know about it previously. Jane decided to write a song about the massacre from the perspective of a woman named Fanny Taylor, whose accusations of assault set the events in motion that led to the Rosewood Massacre. According to Jane, quote, the words, my name is Fanny Taylor, were the first things I sang, end quote. He came to my back door 
One day he hit me with all his might To tell the truth about those bruises Would have led to my disgrace So I said what came the quickest to my tongue That it was a black man who hit me in the face So God forgive me I was young before the fire, before the noise, before I heard the sheriff call. Let's go get them boys before the death, before the screams. I walk the streets rules wood in my. One day it was a place where children went to school The next I saw it burn before my eyes Once upon a time, a community with pride Before the fire Before my At the time of this recording, it has been 98 years since Rosewood, Florida was destroyed. In fact, last week we marked the 98th anniversary of the tragedy. In the last episode, we explored the community of Rosewood beginning with its founding. Rosewood family history puts some of the first black settlers in the area in around 1824. Because Florida was not admitted to the Union as the 27th U.S. state until 1845, historians use 1845 as the year Rosewood was founded. Although Florida was a slave state, the earliest Black families to inhabit the area of Rosewood were free. This was really unusual in the Deep South at the time. Blacks initially gravitated to the area in and around Rosewood in search of opportunities for work, particularly in the lumber and turpentine industries. Rosewood represented what was possible when Black people pooled their resources and knowledge to build a community even in the Jim Crow South. It was an economically diverse community made up of houses, industries, turpentine stills, sawmills, orange groves, market gardens, a train depot, and a post office. It has been described as a community similar to an old west town. Many residents of this predominantly African-American town in 1920s America owned their own property and businesses, and in fact, did quite well for themselves considering the times. Many people who lived in Rosewood were also domestic workers for white families in Sumner or worked in the sawmill located in Sumner nearby. The people of Rosewood had strong values and plenty of skills. Aside from being land and property owners, as we covered in the last episode, they were experts in agrarian society, cultivating the soil, growing crops and raising livestock. They were skilled in various trades such as trapping animals and fishing. There was a bank in Rosewood, a water tower, there were churches and an education system, there was a Masonic Lodge, and two general stores. 
What also set Rosewood apart from other Black communities was its proximity to the railroad, which was used to ship products in and out of town. This helped fuel economic growth in Rosewood, such that some researchers believe a large portion of Rosewood's Black community members resembled middle-class prosperity for the time. This was enough to fuel resentment from racists and segregationists who believed Blacks should remain in a subservient station in life. You had D.W. Griffith's movie, Birth of a Nation, which essentially resurrected the then-defunct Ku Klux Klan. Race-based massacres, violence, and riots were breaking out across the nation, and the year 1919 was dubbed the Red Summer because there were no less than two dozen such incidents targeting Black communities across the country. The growing hostility towards Blacks in the Jim Crow South sparked an exodus of African Americans north and eventually west and midwest. The Great Migration consisted of Blacks who largely left the South to escape racially motivated violence and to find better work. During this time, lynchings rose dramatically and coincided with efforts to reimpose segregation following World War I. On January 1, 1923, a 22-year-old woman who lived in Sumner, Florida, named Fanny Taylor, alleged that she'd been beaten by a black man. Most historical accounts claim this was a lie. If that's true, then the lie sparked the events that would cause the demise of a promising community and haunt survivors of the massacre, as well as their descendants, for decades to come. 98 years ago, during the first week of January of 1923, several mobs began what amounted to a violent, deadly racial cleansing in the rural hamlet. Accounts of the death toll vary, ranging from less than 10 people to more than 100. When the story of Rosewood is told today, the question is often asked how such a thing could be allowed to happen. It was a particularly heinous crime, even for the extremely racist Jim Crow standards of the 1920s South. However, when one considers the historical backdrop, it becomes easier to understand how this atrocity could occur. It becomes easier to see how four black men in McClenny, Florida, were removed from a local jail and lynched for the alleged rape of a white woman in August of 1920. It becomes easier to see how at least seven people could be killed in the black community of Ocoee, Florida, which was destroyed during the Ocoee massacre following a dispute over voting rights in November of 1920. It becomes easier to see how a black man in Wachula, Florida, could be lynched for allegedly attacking a white woman in February of 1921. It becomes easier to see how a black man in Perry, Florida, could be burned at the stake and a number of structures in the black community of Perry also burned after that man was accused of murdering a white school teacher in December of 1922, just two weeks before the Rosewood Massacre. One common denominator in these incidents and others similar to them is that there is often little to no evidence and certainly no due process of law. Over her many years working with Rosewood families, historian and archivist Sherry Sherrod Dupree has also recorded many of the stories passed down through the generations about Rosewood. This is what those families have told her about the massacre. knowledge when the Rosewood incident did occur. Can you kind of take me through the main points and help us to understand? Well, there were several accounts, of course, as you would know, of a situation like that. But the basic story was that Fanny Taylor 
was going with uh, an unidentified white man, and his name was Bradley. His last name was Bradley. He worked for the railroad. And on this particular day, which was New Year's morning, Bradley came by and they had an altercation. And from the altercation, she was hit and slapped or what have you. She had scars and she could not allow her husband to come back from the mill to find her scarred and beaten. So she claimed that an African-American man assaulted her and it was an unidentified black man. And of course, her husband was upset and he said, well, we're gonna get a posse out here right away and we're gonna find out who this person was that assaulted Fanny. And the posse was formed. And late that afternoon, they apprehended Sam Carter. Sam Carter was the blacksmith. The reason they went to see him was because they put bloodhounds out, those are dogs, the trail. And the dogs trail to the blacksmith's shop. So whoever it was had gone to the blacksmith's shop. And of course, Carter, who was a Mason, a 22nd degree Mason, took Bradley on his wagon to the Wakasasa River. Bradley went to get a ride from the 33 degree Mason and he was taken to the Wakasasa River on the wagon. Okay, when the dogs got to the place and they could see and smell the, the tracks, the men came behind it and they re recognized that a wagon train, wagon wheels were taken away. And of course, to the uh, water they went. When they got there, they didn't find anybody. So they went back to Sam Carter and asked him what had happened. And Sam acted like he didn't know anything, which he didn't. And so the bottom line was from there, Sam was taken, he was tortured, and he was killed. Now, going back to tracking, they said when the wagon went out, the wagon was a little bit deeper, meaning that the wheels were a little deeper and it was leaving a little more sand uh, down into the ground. And when it came back, the wagon was a little bit lighter. So they knew that somebody had been dropped off that <laughs> wagon. And that gave them proof to say that he was involved and didn't tell the correct information. So therefore he was the first to be killed. And then the anger kept growing because the dogs said it was leading them to Rosewood. And of course, from Rose, when they got to Rosewood, they went to visit Sarah's house. And when they went to visit Aunt Sarah's home, it was a group of them, a vigilante group of them. And they asked for the person to come out who had done this to Annie Taylor. And nobody came out, of course. But at the house there, two white men were killed. One was called Polly Wilkerson, and then Henry Andrews was the other one that was killed. And they were killed there because they tried to enter Aunt Sarah's house. And her son defended the home. And he killed those two white men on the porch. And they shot out all their ammunition or whatever they had. And so when they left, the people in the house and the blacks got word that they had to get out of the community right away because it was going to be a big problem. And so that's when the women and the children and from all the homes and everywhere ran to the woods. And, and before that, though, they shot Aunt Sarah. 
Through the Sarah upstairs on the second floor in her window there. Yeah. Before that, Paulie and Andrews were killed. That's exactly right. You're absolutely correct. There, yes. They they kill her. Now, one thing needs to be said about Aunt Sarah had breastfed most of those young men that were out there. And she thought she could talk to them and calm them down to leave. And that's why she went to the window to talk to them. This is what family said. And so she knew all of them just about by name. And when she went to the window to talk to them, somebody shot her and, and she fell back into the house. And some said she fell on the bed. Some said she fell on the floor. That I don't know. But anyway, they killed her. And of course, once the word got back downstairs that your mama's upstairs and she's gone, that really angered. And of course, one thing led to two things. And then the white guy said, well, we're going to take over and come on into the house. And when they started in, Sylvester gave him the shotgun and he killed two right there. Now, that story was given by Minnie Lee Langley. Minnie Lee gave that and several others testified that that was what happened. And when they came back, they came back with all kinds of weapons. But at that time, when they came back, the family members, uh, all of them had gotten to the woods and had gotten out. The question has always been, did Sylvester get away? The movie says that he was under his mother's coffin. When they carried her out, he was underneath. Family members said that he got away. And they had postcards that they have shown and other things. He never gave an address, but he got away. He sent money back from time to time. I also have a book here. In this book, this was the sheriff. He was in over in Ocala area. And in this book, even though it's considered a fiction book, he said that he got away. He said that he got away. And he was the sheriff over in the area of Ocala, Florida, which was Marion County. And this book has been given to me by whites. And they said, definitely, he got away. But they didn't give me all the details. But everything that you read and see is he was killed in that house. But this sheriff said he got away. And I've even talked to the author who is now deceased of this book, David Warner. And Warner's now deceased. Warner wrote several books, but he said, I, I can put my hands on the Bible and tell you that he got away. And even in Michael DeOrsa's book, he mentions that the rumor was that Sylvester got away, that he did send postcards, although Michael never saw the postcards. But I always wondered when I'm reading these accounts and listening to the accounts, it always talks about how good of a shock he was, right? Like he was, that's right. Right. And so even his niece who survived and would become one of the survivors who would tell the story later on, even she said, you know, he pulled her aside underneath the stairwell and had her between his legs so that he could protect her. Right, when they were coming in. And she actually says she remembers him killing way more than two people. She says he killed quite a number. So I wondered, you know, well, if he was such a good marksman and he killed so many people and he was on the inside, how did he just end up dead? So I always thought that was interesting. And then when I heard the rumors about how he'd gotten away, I said, okay. Well, now we're getting somewhere. I feel that he got away based on sitting, talking to family members and looking at their facial expressions and how they expressed what had happened. 
he got away. And another thing that has not been expressed that there were women out there also. It weren't just men out there shooting at the house. There were women out there as well. And that story has never shooting? come Shooting? Yes, yes. Oh. oh yeah, those women were rough. And they were right out there with the men shooting at Aunt Sarah's house. Mm-hmm. And that's another story that you haven't heard that this gentleman also shared with me before he passed, David L. Warner. And he, he said there were several white women out there. But in the movie, it only showed white men. So you mean the, the attackers? That, 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 that were outside of Aunt Sarah's house that night. But this book, that, uh, High Sheriff and Jim Turner. Then there's another book that another white lady put out. And she said that, that she had heard that he got away too. Mm. So we don't know. But yeah. you did you say you had seen the postcards? I did not see the postcards from the family. No, I did not see the postcards. I know they had one there from New Orleans at one of the family meetings that I went to. Okay. But it didn't have a signature on it. That's the only thing that I ever saw. Now, that said there were others. And then he paid for some of them to get the roofs put on. He paid for education. At different times, things would happen. And then he would disappear. And then a couple of people in Jacksonville, Florida, said that they actually saw him. Oh, yeah. So family members believe that he got away. Wow. They don't know the details of how he got away. Mm. But in the movie, he was destroyed. And if you listen to other accounts, it shows that he did not get away. But all the survivors contend that he did escape. Well, pretty much, yes. I interviewed uh, Willie Evans. He's deceased, but he was over 100 years old. And I interviewed Mary Hall Daniels. Now, she was a child and three years old, and she could not verify but Willie could verify because he was 13 or 14 years old. And he was the one that told me the story about the young man that was too tall and he lost his eye going through the woods. And he rescued him and got him out of the woods. And he lived until he was in his, in the 1960s, I believe it was. So those stories we know are true because they came from sources that I would feel comfortable in saying that they told the truth. When you think about all of these different accounts, right, of horrendous acts of of anti-Black violence, racist, mob-inspired acts of violence. Oftentimes, at least if it occurred during this era, the turn of the century, the early part of the 20th century, Black people are very reluctant to talk about it, would rather carry it to their graves, and probably would have if in Rosewood, in this case, if they could, if a journalist didn't come snooping around in 1982. But I wonder... Do you think it was more than fear that kept them from wanting to talk publicly about it? Perhaps do you think it was to conceal, you know, Sylvester's identity or the fact that he survived? Or was it was it just fear that made them not want to talk about it? Or in your opinion, was it something else? It was a mental state. I mean, if you've been a slave and been deprived of so many things all of your life, you live in a mental state. You're not supposed to be able to read. You're not supposed to understand knowledge. And so this has been put into your system over and over and over again. And it passes from one generation to the next. It's not just a one generation thing. So they were doing that to not only protect themselves, but to protect future generations. 
It's a horrible thing to think about. But even today, people do certain things to protect family and friends. That's why racism is so strong, because it's still promoting and protecting their way of life. And they don't want to change that way of life. So they are killed to keep their way of life. And we know that. So therefore, you carry your life in a form so that you can try to survive and help your future people to survive. It's a legacy type thing. It's the Willie Lynch. You've heard of Willie Lynch? It's the Willie Lynch syndrome. And it's very strong and it has not left us. So beyond just, you know, this sort of madness that the Ku Klux Klan members exhibited when they massacred Rosewood, you think these other things that had been leading up to Rosewood in the years prior, you know, in Tulsa and the Red Summer of 1919 and all the other sort of white capping incidents where Black people were run out of their their towns and communities. Do you think all that was also in response to Black people advancing too quickly in society and the opinion of, of white supremacists and racists and that Rosewood was yet another symptom of that? Yes. In one word, yes. Yes, it was. It was finance. Everything with the other culture deals with economics and money. And there's no respect for life. You don't exist. You're chatter. You know what chatter is. And so it's passed down from generation to generation that you maintain your superiority over inferiority. So those have been, especially for the land, because in my family, land was stolen. So, you know, we know how ruthless they can be. Life means nothing to them as long as it's their lives, not your lives. So that's just the way it is. And of course, they always want to stay, oh, it was just a riot. No, it wasn't. It was a massacre. And we stress massacre. And all of them need to express massacre because in a riot, you have two-way fightings. And these people were fighting to survive to get out of the way. And then the massacre, also, you destroy everything. You take all of the animals, you destroy the homes, you take the jewelry, you take everything that is of value, the cars and so forth that they had and drove them away. That's a massacre. And these massacres not only have been going on in the United States, they are Africa all over the world. And the main thing that has saved us has been the black newspaper. If it had not been for the black newspaper, a lot of this history would have not been known. And another thing that has saved us has been the railroad, being able to have men to work on the railroad and to travel and to know what was going on in different locations. This is what saved Rosewood because Rosewood could get their products in, they could get their products out. They had pipe organs down there. They had made pianos. They had two-story homes things that others did not have in the community range, white, I'm speaking. And this was a threat to them. They could not have that. So when you see others coming in and how did they get this and how did they get that, we we can't have that. We're going to bring things back to where we feel that they should be. And you should be under our thumb at all times. You're still chatter so far as they're concerned. And the other thing I need to say It didn't just happen in Rosewood. It was all the surrounding towns. 
Several towns are no more. Lenox, no more. There were four or five other towns, no more. And Chiefland, which is yet in play, did an interview up there and the lady told me that, well, they came through here and I was a little child. And they went through our house looking for the man who had assaulted the lady in Rosewood. Fanny. Fanny Taylor. Yeah, Fanny Taylor. And, he, and she said, I was a child. And she's in the 90s right now. Anyway, she told me, she said, they came in our house when I was a child. She said, I just barely remember. So they even went in the flower barrel, under the beds and everywhere. She said, when you hear of massacres, people don't think about the surrounding areas and how many people get hurt and killed in the surrounding areas. And this is so true. Oh, it all happened in Rosewood. Oh no, everything in between there and Gainesville was assaulted in different ways. People lost their lives, they lost their crops, they lost what they had, and all of that has not been discussed. Lennox was one community that was in pain. And the lady that I interviewed, her name was Mrs. Washington. In fact, there are newspaper articles on her, I believe in the Gainesville Sun newspaper. She is now deceased. And she told about the smoke and the fire that she could see coming from Rosewood. She was a child. And she told about how they came through there and stole what they had. Even the clothes that were on the line were taken. The animals and all of their goods and services, and they destroyed the whole town. Another area, like I said, was Chiefland. And the the African-Americans there will just tell you about how they came through there and said they even set some of their houses on fire. Talking about, oh, this ain't nothing but a shack and burn those folks' houses down. None of that has ever been discussed or talked about. So whenever you have massacres and these things happening in the community, we don't look at what's going on around those communities that cause all these people to come in there and destroy. And they do destroy. And they come in droves. They don't come one or two. They come in droves and destroy your whole community. They took the meats out of the smokehouse. You know where the smokehouse is, where you kept meats that were cured. She said they just went in there and just took all the meats and the hams and so forth and put them on the back of the horses in the cars and carried them on with them. There's nothing you can do. Another family told me they all ran to the woods. This was not in Rosewood but it was in the area leading in Levy County. They had to go to the woods. They stayed in the woods almost a week after everything was over because they didn't know when to come out. They were frightened until everything was quieted down. She said they took the steps off our house and left the part of the house standing. So a lot went on that people never know about. And what we hear in history has been sanitized, as I call it, but the truth is not out there. A case that has not been included in this, and I will tell you, this was from Mr. Scott, Joe Eddie Scott. He lives in Chiefland, Florida. I believe that's what he told me. To keep them safe, white folks locked them up in the barn. They took all of those African-Americans and put them in a barn and kept them there so that they would be safe. The white man put them in there because he had them work in the fields and so forth. And so as they were hiding in the barn and standing, they didn't have rooms. He said they had them standing up in there like they were in a sardine can, if you can understand how tight sardines are. His sister was three years old during the time. I think she was around two to three years of age. And this little girl was on the floor. The child was on the ground. 
And because they were standing up, they had to stand all night. The child smothered to death. His sister smothered to death because she could not get air because it was so tight in there. And that was his sister. That's a story that has not been told. And that was during the time of the Rosewood Massacre. And, and this was in Rosewood? It was in Elsie. Elsie is on the way to Rosewood on Highway 24. Elsie is another surrounding town. And of course, they ramshacked their homes and everything else while they were there. But the seriousness of it was his sister lost her life right there because she could not get air because there's so many people packed in that barn to stay safe during the time of the Rosewood Massacre. So there are stories like that that need to be told. There are other stories that I can tell you too. Brother Willie Evans was over 100 years old and he was there during the time of the massacre. He was around 13 or 14 years of age. And so the men had to run and he was a boy and of course he had to run. And in the process of running and leaving Rosewood, the boys, if they came up past the waistline of a white man, could not go on the train. They could only take women and children and the young boys. This boy came up to his shoulder length. And so therefore, he had to go with the grown men. And in running through the woods trying to get out, this young man took a bullet in his eye. Okay, and they had to turn him up and run with a blanket and, and get out of Rosewood area. And this is a true story as well. And this man lived until the 1963 or 64. And he was with one eye and people didn't know why he had one eye. Wow. They brought him out of Rosewood. So these are the stories that have not been told. song about Fanny Taylor in the beginning of this episode? Well, for the first time ever, her great-great-grandson is publicly speaking out about his family's connection to Rosewood. Michael Leach only recently learned that his great-great-grandmother, Fanny Taylor, was involved in the massacre. My name is Mike Leach. I live in Sparta, Tennessee. I am originally from Mobile, Alabama. Now, obviously, the purpose of our interview is to explore the history of Fannie Taylor. Why don't you just tell us what your relationship is to Fannie Taylor as you understand it? So all of this is very new for me. I spoke with my grandmother a little bit, got a little bit of history from her. She was adopted in early 1940s when she was Bernice Gray Taylor. Bernice Gray Taylor is the eldest son of Francis Fanny Taylor. So, so your the, grandmother is Ruby Taylor. Correct. Ruby Taylor Leach. Bernice Gray is her stepdad or was her stepdad. And Francis Taylor or Fanny Taylor is Bernice Gray's mother. 
That's correct. Bernice Gray was the eldest son of Fanny and Henry James. Do you have any contact with Fanny Taylor's side of the family? Is it just your grandmother that, you know, you're in contact with? So my grandparents adopted me in 1986. I was in second grade. In 1986, I was living in Alabama, and my grandmother showed up. She was going to her great uncle's funeral. Now, I had discovered that she was going to Kenneth Taylor's funeral. He died in 1986 at 56 years old. He was the last born son of Fanny and Henry. And growing up, Bernice and my great-grandmother, Johnny, had been divorced two times. They got married, got divorced, married, divorced. And apparently that runs in my family because my grandparents did that too. So I'm hoping to break that cycle. Growing up, I knew nothing about my great-grandfather's family. As far as I knew as a child, he was an only child. I've since discovered that he had two brothers. Bernice was five during the Rosewood attack. His brother, Addis, was three months old when the attack And I had never heard of them until speaking to you and starting to do some digging of my own, came across their gravestones. And now I'm looking to see if any of them had children, because this is all new family to me. So your grandmother never mentioned any other children or relatives from that side of the family? No, there was never any mention. As far as I knew, Ernest, we called him Barney. Praise God that we don't use those names anymore. But (laughs) um, as, as far as I knew, he was an only child and I knew nothing of his family. Like I say, for a good bit of my childhood, He and my great-grandmother were divorced, and she was just his caretaker. He had Alzheimer's and dementia, and so he was kind of in and out a lot of the time. So I I never knew he had any family, and his middle brother, Addis, actually passed away when I was 17 years old, and I had no clue that he even existed So how did you first find out about the Rosewood Massacre? I wasn't the first person who contacted you. I think I was the second, right? That's correct. You were the second. Weird story. No one actually contacted me. Everybody's contacted my wife. You were the second person to contact her. Someone contacted her at Christmas, and it was basically a brand new Facebook profile. She stated that she wanted to find out about our relationship to the family of Penny Taylor, who was responsible for the Rosewood massacre. And that was the first I'd ever heard of the massacre or Penny Taylor. So I kind of looked a little bit and I really didn't put a whole lot into it at the time. And it came off kind of like she was accusing my wife of being, you know, racist and, it didn't sit very well, the way, the tone of the, the message. And I never heard anything. And then you reached out to my wife and my wife forwarded the message to me. She was obviously a little taken back because this is the second you know, person that's reached out in just a couple of weeks. What I'd like to know is you mentioned that this would be your great, great grandmother. So 
Fanny Taylor would be you, Michael Leach's great-great-grandmother. And Fanny Taylor married James Taylor, and they had several children. Bernice Gray was one of those children, and Bernice Gray adopted your grandmother, Ruby Taylor. And I guess, did your grandmother, Ruby Taylor, did she have children? Are you the son of one of her children? I am. So Ruby Taylor had my Uncle Rick, William Richard, and then she had my mother. And then they adopted another child, Frank. 2016, my grandfather passed away from cancer. 2017, my mother died. And in 2018, my oldest uncle died. So all three, within three years of each other, died. I mean, no death is pleasant, but, you know, my grandfather died a very painful death. My mom was in an accident and struck by a train pedestrian and then my uncle we think it was drug related so we really have no answers about his his death but in second grade my grandparents adopted me they actually took me out of an abusive home and they basically told my mom and stepdad was living in mobile they said we're taking him and there's nothing you can do about it. If you want, we'll just press charges and have you arrested. So they took me and we moved to Hendersonville, North Carolina, Fletcher, North Carolina. It's a small town in Western North Carolina. At the time, I basically didn't know my grandparents. I had no clue who they were. I hadn't seen them since I was a baby. So it's a strange family just took me out of a bad situation. And I really didn't know how to, to react to that because of my childhood. I was a very reclusive child. I didn't, you know, I didn't really get into the family history. Nothing was ever really said about it. And I spent a lot of time reading books in my room by myself. That was my escape was pick up a book, which crazy as it sounds, my main book to read were encyclopedias and civil war history, you know, and I'd never heard of Black Wall Street, never heard of, you know, Rosewood. I never heard of the election day massacres. None of that, none of that was in any of the history books I read. And none of that was in any history books that I, or history classes I was taught in school. Just like, strangers are learning about it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it, it's heart wrenching because I mean, I lived in lack of Florida as a little kid and we went there every summer, you know, I've been through Lake city, been to Gainesville, you know, Gainesville's where the, the Klan rally was being hailed. You know, this, I've been in all these towns and never, heard anything about it to find out that my family was a part or a big cause of this is, I mean, it's pretty saddening. Now, of course you had nothing to do with that. And obviously your ideology is a lot different than perhaps the ideology of a lot of people back then. However, 
what's your level of confidence when it comes to what you've read so far about your great great grandmother, your great great grandfather, and their, I guess, involvement in the Rosewood massacre in terms of how truthful that information is, in your opinion? I mean, just from a history point of view, it's very plausible that, you know, it's, it was very common to make an accusation to protect yourself. And she was married at 15 years old. You know, so she was very young, already had two children. They were, you know, Henry James was a sawmill worker. So clearly they were a, a poor family, you know. I mean, it's not entirely unheard of that or unbelievable that she could have been having an affair. And, you know, as we've seen from multiple occasions in Florida, even Alabama, just the South in general, all it takes is one accusation and there's a riot. And honestly, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same stuff nowadays. We don't pay attention to history. We don't learn about our history. We try to block out our history because it's hurtful. And then we repeat it. So, I mean, it's just from reading everything, it could go either way because we're getting, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm defending her actions because I don't know. But, you know, I, I can't say that she wasn't lying. In terms of the community of Rosewood, what are your thoughts when you heard about, you know, forget about the accusation that Fannie Taylor made, just in general, what happened to that community? What were your thoughts when you heard about that, when you're, you know, when that person first contacted your wife? And I guess when you looked it up online, what did you think? What went through your mind? Again, it's, it's heart-wrenching because... You know, this was a thriving community. It was doing very well. And obviously, I don't want to see, I don't like to see anybody hurt. But I mean, all it was one accusation. And without any due process or, you know, actual investigation, an entire town was plundered and destroyed. And, you know, I've read, I read about the last house from Rosewood that's still standing and the monument that's out front, people still drive by and shoot it. You know, the, the house is a historical landmark and people still go by and destroy the, the plaque that's out front. You know, you may not agree with the history, but it happened. It's there. You know, we can't deny our past, no matter how hurtful it is. You know, it's just, it it kills me that, you know, to see an entire town wiped out like this and families, generations just hurting from this. So did you ask your grandmother, Ruby Taylor, to be fair, she's still alive. I have not talked to her. But I wondered, did you ask her anything about the massacre when you'd first learned about it? 
So I have asked her a little bit. She has the onset of dementia and you know, with everything that's happened in the last couple of years, her mental stability is not the best. She gets worked up real easy. So I've kind of asked some questions and she gets really worked up and, you know, she said that she was told that Fanny was right, but, you know, we've seen that she was, there was no signs of right. She was hit. So it's asked a little bit. And then I've just started kind of asking more of genealogy questions and digging on my own. And I don't know how well she even knew Fanny. She, like I say, my whole life, I'm 43, well, 43 in a couple of weeks. And she never mentioned any of those. I don't know how well she knew Fanny, but she was pretty set on Fanny was right. But then again, with her, and her dementia goes, she makes up facts and thinks that they're true, even about me. And she raised me. I don't really pull a lot into her because her is pretty much gone. But I guess it's safe to say that at least she believes what Fanny said, or she believes Fanny was assaulted. Did your grandmother, did Ruby Taylor say, you know, whether she believed it was a black man or a white man, or she just said Fanny was raped? All she told me was Fanny was raped. And uh, she didn't go into any, any other details. In your research, have you found out any other new information that you didn't know before about your family that kind of surprised you as well, good or bad? I'm really wanting to dig in and find out because for all I know, the Taylor bloodline died. I haven't seen anything that showed that Addis, Kenneth, or Burnus had any children. And I know my great-grandfather Burnus never had any kids. That's why he adopted I don't think he could have kids. But as a younger guy, he made a bunch of money selling real estate in Florida. And then he pretty much drank it all away and died. Very poor man living in a nursing home and couldn't even pull his pants. Up. So I don't know if the drinking came from the skeletons in the closet haunting him. That was actually going to be my next question. I was just going to ask, finally, do you think, knowing what you know now about your family and just the new history that you learned, do you think somehow the Rosewood Massacre sort of impacted your family dynamic and just the way, I guess, people in your family deal with trauma or, you know, difficult situations? I think it's very possible alcoholism runs in my family and you know my great-grandfather was alcoholic my great-grandmother was a raging alcoholic which could have been why they kept getting divorced and remarried i was old enough to realize what was going on both of my grandparents were alcoholics as a 19 20 year old in the army i was sent to aa through the army's version anonymous so I would say that it has impacted my family, but I'm a firm believer in you cannot blame your history on your present. You know, you have to know I, I've came from 
an abusive family, alcoholism, drug abuse. And I realized that, you know, I can't keep this cycle repeating. So I changed myself so that I can better myself for my children and then help others. You know, I have to use my pain to help others go through a similar pain and recover. If we just hang on to the pain and dwell on that, we're always going to be mad, angry, hurt people. We have to learn to, to heal. And you can't do that by being mad all the time. And part of your healing involves helping other people, right? That's correct. So I, I work in a factory as a health, safety, and environmental manager. Outside of that, I do volunteer rescue, search rescue, vehicle education, stuff like that. And then I also work in a church. I've done jail ministry, student ministry, and work in a nursery. I spent a lot of time working through church and through volunteering in the community to try to help other people. I've actually given messages at church about my past. Obviously not this part because I've just learned about it. And with something like this, especially in this day and age, uh, it's not really something you can just come out and say, you know. So this is something that I'm going to have to figure out if I can use this and how I can share this in a tactful way. I'm definitely going to use this to grow and do what I can with it because obviously this information has been presented to me. Hopefully I can use it to help someone else. And I know that we are right at two years from the 100th anniversary of Rosewood. And my wife and I were talking, I plan on going to Rosewood. If I'm not there for the 100th anniversary, which I'm not entirely sure that would be a welcome, but I do plan on visiting very soon. I want to go and see their graves and I want to go to, to Rosewood. I would love to meet any family members if anyone would be interested. History is a field of study and a method of gathering, preserving, and interpreting the voices and memories of people, communities, and participants in past events. End quote. That's according to the Oral History Association. It goes on to say, quote, Oral history is both the oldest type of historical inquiry, predating the written word, and one of the most modern, initiated with tape recorders in the 1940s and now using 21st century digital technologies. In doing oral history, Donald Ritchie explains, quote, oral history collects memories and personal commentaries of historical significance through recorded interviews, end quote. We know what we know about massacres and riots in Rosewood, Florida, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Knoxville, Tennessee, Elaine, Arkansas, Washington, D.C., Longview, Texas, Phillips County, Arkansas, Omaha, Nebraska, Chicago, Illinois, and many, many others, thanks to the oral history that has been passed down from generation to generation. 
Lucky for us, the dedicated historians, researchers, archivists, and others with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida have done an amazing job of recording and archiving numerous accounts of witnesses and descendants of witnesses to some of the most historically significant events in Florida's history, including in Black Floridian communities. You're about to hear one such account from a man named Joe Eddie Scott as part of the African American History Project at the University of Florida. Mr. Scott was interviewed by Ryan Marini on November 18th, 2014. In this interview, Joe Eddie Scott covers a large breadth of issues, some of which pertain to his life pre-integration in different parts of Florida. It includes different racist incidents that occurred around Otter Creek, Elsie, and Rosewood, Florida, including the Rosewood Massacre. This led to Scott creating a chapter of the NAACP and becoming the president of the Levy County NAACP branch. born? Uh, fifth, 19th day, 1940. Elsie, Florida. In Elsie, Florida. And so that is, that's near Otter Creek, you were saying? Oh yeah, right down from Otter Creek. You get Otter Creek, you turn right. From here, you turn <clears> right. But if you come from Gainesville, you keep right straight. And then you'll get uh, Otter Creek and then Elsie. And then a place called Wiley. Mm. And then Rosewood. And then Sumner. And then City Key. A lot of places kind of. Oh, yeah, they always had the places, you know, so the, the, in between Gainesville and Brunson, uh, Otter Creek, a lot of, a lot of little places to Metaris and Lennon and all. And look, stop. Every time, house, you know. Mm-hmm. People lived in a place. Uh, a lot of people got killed on the road. Oh, well, maybe I'm starting the wrong way. When they're doing the Rosewood thing, mm-hmm. you know, one guy named uh, they call him God knows, and they shot him mm-hmm. during this time. Several other people, I, I don't like. They don't have no name or history, but if they saw you on the road, a black person, he was shot. Was a lot of people that were coming to Rosewood was not really from Rosewood, but he was coming from South Carolina, Texas, all around down there. Mm. So at that time, you could do that, all that junk, you know, and get away with it. You know, I don't know whether you can do it so handily now, but they done it. And, uh, but mom, anyway, mom and them was in Elsie, and they had to be, they were working for the West Brothers. And the road, the people's coming to Elsie, out of town, they know Elsie from Rosewood. So mom and them had to be guarded. You see, the mm. boss man guarded them because he needed them to work. People, so that's why he protect them, see. And the commissary was a place where they kept the food for their hands and for horses and things. You know, they had hay in there and feed and all that in there. So mom and them had to stay in there. Mm. You see, to keep the people from killing them because they could see our houses from from where we were, there was two quarters, but one you couldn't see. Where we lived, that you could see. And one other thing about Elsa, at one time we had the smallest 
post office in the whole United States that, that's in the history. If that's any good in the history book, but it was right then else. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then, you know, this thing went on for about a week, mm -hmm. you know, and I had a sister, a little sister got smothered out there. Now, mm -hmm. She was a baby. And they didn't have, mama didn't never, didn't have no name. Mama didn't, didn't had name. And, but she, she got smothered out there because there was all, so many of them in that, that, that area. It was hot, you know, and they couldn't, wouldn't let them out, you see. And all of them hung, was laying in there trying to survive and this baby being like that, you know. And I called her the history, the record. She was buried in Auto Creek. They had a graveyard in Auto Creek. I think they grubbed that graveyard up, which was against the law. Ooh. But I was, I was too young to do anything about it when this happened. I didn't know that wasn't right. But uh, my mother, brother, grandma, all, a lot of other people buried there in Auto Creek. Other than that, mom and them for days, for a week at a time. They, like I say, they stayed in that that, that closed-up area, couldn't get out. And the people's, and the brides drove the train, they, they only picked up women. They told them to pick up the women, mm -hmm. and not the men. You know, a lot of men got away. And uh, anyway, but then if they caught one of them, then they, they lynched them, not the sheriff. He got a lot of them, get a lot of them to Archer, Gangsville, and some of them come to here in Chiefland. Some went to Otter Creek and he and stayed there. The Bradleys, some of them went to Otter Creek. And uh, So the sheriff helped the people then? They say. Hmm. Say he did. I didn't think he did, but the records say he did. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, where were they closed up in? Where everyone was pressed together. This is the camp in Elsie. This is right? a little commissary they call it. Oh, so that's what they're yeah, the commissary so where food was. They called the commissary, you know. And so all the all the workers were in there. All the people know. that lived in that area, and that on that side, you know, in the quarters, they had what we call the quarters. You know, you had houses there, you know, and everybody stayed in the boss man houses. You see, oh. and uh, so then they had to get them out of the quarters. Bring them up there where they could guard them. Because, like I said, a lot of people coming from different areas out of state was coming down there. And they didn't know Elsie from, didn't make no difference them no way. Mm -hmm. The people that lived in Rosewood knew Elsie. But the mm -hmm. people that come from out of state, all they want to see is a black person. Yeah. And they were shooting. See, and I just read that as part of about this man. They caught him, God knows, they shot him down on the road. You know, and... And go on and on and on, you know. God knows. That was, that was yeah. a nickname. Yeah, God called them God knows. You know, we always had them nicknames in the quarters, you know. <laughs> God knows. Because every time you asked something, they, they'd say, I didn't know him. You know, I heard other people talking about it, but his, his name is in this story I got. But uh, he, everything, he, he asked him, he'd say, God knows, you know. So that's why they started calling them God knows. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Rosewood, it was a, that was a bad time. 
Sounds you know? like it. But I think <clears throat> I don't blame the people from doing what they they done. I blame the government for failing to protect our rights. Mm. You see, because uh, you know after we were freed one time. Uh, because of bad politics, they put it right back on the worse abundance than we had when we was in slavery. You see, because at one time, you know, we were free. We could, we had uh, congressmen all through these woods. I know, I'm sure you, somebody in Gainesville told you about all those guys that we had a congressman from around, lots of way on around. And, uh, but then they, you know, when the Democratic Party, which I'm a member of that party, <laughs> they sold out mm. years ago, you know. And all to gain power, because we was all Republicans, you see, because mm -hmm. the Republicans weren't free the blacks, you see. And uh, so we voted Republicans until 19, to the 30s, till Hoover got in there and stopped everybody, that's they say. You know, Mama was in at that time. So that's why we started voting Democrat, but we was all Republicans, you know, thing like that. But getting back to Rosewood, I guess, and all these people are... Uh, Survived Rosewood, the women, some of the men went through the woods and got all scratched up. And uh, the Bradleys, some of them went to Miami because they was well-educated people. Now, Rosewood was a place where the black people had their own stuff down there. Mm -hmm. You see, churches, Masonic Hall, in uh, school, all owned by blacks. See, they had things that the whites didn't have, like pianos. Mm -hmm. If you if you looked at this that picture, Rosewood we ever seen it. You know when the guys went to a Sylvester Carey house and they had a big piano. He said, "Oh man, they, they, they got a piano in the house." You know he he called them the N word. You know. <laughs> episode part two of rosewood the massacre and one suggestion for my geeky nerdy or otherwise curious podcast listeners check out how jamaica conquered the world it covers the small island of jamaica and how it's really forged a new type of empire an intangible realm of which there are no physical monuments although there's no official political or economic sphere of jamaican influence when it comes to popular culture, its global reach is immense, far exceeding the reasonable expectation of a nation of just over 2.7 million people. Before the fire 
Before the noise Before I heard 